When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. Today, we are joined by Jared Dillian of the Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you, Jared, here. It's uh, Friday, October 8th, I should say. Today, we had some distressing news from the labor market where the we were expected to add half a million jobs uh, in September, and we only added 194,000. A lot of different takes I'm seeing on, on Twitter and the news and analysis. What, what was your uh, take on the news, Jared? And how specifically did you react to uh, the bond market's take uh, reaction to the news? Well, you know, actually, I think that, um, you know, ordinarily the the unemployment rate is kind of a BS number. It's not in a number that economists look at. It's not important. Um, but I do think the unemployment rate is actually um, more important these days because, because the Fed is probably, probably has more political constraints than it's had in recent memory. Um, and it's very difficult for the Fed to tighten monetary policy if unemployment is above 5%. Okay, so now the unemployment rate is below 5%, and I really think it needs to get down to about 4.5% before the Fed feels that it has political cover to tighten. I don't think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about tapering in the last couple of months, and I think it's been mostly talk. I don't think the Fed had ever any intention of tapering. Um, but once you start getting the unemployment rate below 4.5% and down towards 4 um, those discussions are going to pick up. So I think that partially explains the action in the bond market today. Uh, bonds spiked when the number was released, but then sold off and actually had a pretty bad day. Um, if I'm just looking at this as a trader at the bond market, um, the bond market got good news and sold off on good news. And the price action has been terrible for a couple of weeks. Uh, back in August, Tens were 112. Now they're 160. The chart is very scary. It's a it's a very scary chart. It looks like we're going to retest the highs and yields. Um, so, and I think I think part of that is, you know, I think the um, the headline number, the payroll number, was very soft. But once the market started to take a look at the revisions and the unemployment rate, uh, that made the bond market sell off. Yeah, so when you say uh, it was good news for the bond market, bad news for society, but bad news for society is often good news for the bond market because uh, you know uh, uh, not adding as many jobs to the economy as one would think that you know is uh, not a good sign for the economy. So people should buy government bonds, which is you know one of the safest instruments in the world. So you're saying that is good news for bonds, and yet bonds sold off, meaning yields spiked. I think the ten-year spiked about about three basis points um, as, as we are now. So it's 
you know, perched above, uh, you know, 1.6 on the U.S. 10-year. Um, yeah, Jared, I, I just, I just want to, um, you know, ask you, how is this, you know, impacting your view, uh, your inflationary view? How has that evolved? Well, I don't, it's, I don't really necessarily believe in the Phillips curve here. I don't think that, um, you know, the labor market getting tighter is a sign that inflation is going to go up, although I do think inflation is going to go up. Um, you know, I'm just really focused on the absolute level of rates. And, um, you know, mortgages, mortgage rates went over 3% last week, okay? Um, I'm watching that very carefully because, you know, I'm going to have to get a construction loan and build a house and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I... Now, a lot of people, I think, erroneously believe that, you know, rates tick up 50 basis points and the housing market comes to a stop. Uh, I don't think that happens. I think mortgage rates could go up to three and three quarters to four percent before the housing market really starts to materially slow down. Um, so I think there's a lot of room there. Yeah, that the Phillips curve, which you allude to, was a uh, long thought correlation between inflation and unemployment, where a low unemployment rate would sort of cause high inflation. Over the past decade, we haven't really seen that play out. So I think you, as well as you know, a lot of economists, are, are calling that into, into question. Uh, Jared, my, my question for you is, so the US unemployment rate, it dipped um, from 52 to 4.8%, which sounds really good. But as you alluded to earlier, the unemployment rate is not a be-all, uh, end-all, because it's, uh, it's, it's how many people of the labor force are, are able to get half jobs. And the labor force is people who are looking for for work, and the number of people who are who are themselves looking for work actually ticked down um, from 61.7 percent the labor participation rate to 61.6, and the estimate was 61.9. Uh, Jerry, you know the expectation was all these unemployment benefits uh, are rolling over, so people are going to have to go back to work, and yet they didn't. What do you think explains that? I don't have an explanation. Um, I mean, this is kind of this is this is the pandemic economy, you know, something fundamentally fundamentally changed in the psychology of people with the pandemic. Um, I think that uh, if people have the means not to work, if they have some savings, they won't necessarily go get a job. I had a, I had a discussion with one of my subscribers who lives in New Jersey and he was getting his house painted and the contractor told him that he was offering forty five dollars an hour for somebody to paint a house. $45 an hour is $90,000 a year. You know, and I told him, I was like, I would paint a house for $90,000 a year. I mean, that sounds amazing. You're outside, you're listening to music. Like, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have a care in the world. $90,000 a year to paint a house. And he still couldn't find people, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's uh, not, not bad. Uh, Jared, the other news of the day is that crude oil, uh, spiked higher, it really exploded higher. Uh, Western Texas Intermediate it, uh, briefly went above $80 a barrel for the first time since 2014. So the you know energy surge that we thought was over two months ago is actually, it's, it's back in full force. Um, and you know the energy stocks erupted higher with XLE up uh, 3%. XLE now at a post-pandemic high. Jared, you were early into the energy trade, XLE and the various uh, energy stocks. But you got out of them uh, recently. 
Um, can you just refresh us, the audience, refresh us uh, as to why you got out of the energy trade and what is your outlook on, on that stock? stock on yeah, that I was I was early into it, but I'm also early out of it, obviously. I'm kind of early on a lot of stuff. Um, uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, I just made enough money, right? I mean, sometimes that's really the way it is in the trade. You really hit a home run and, you know, you don't need to catch hundred percent of a move, you can catch 80% of a move and you made enough money and you take off the risk and you just look for the next trade. That's part of it. The other part of it is, um, you know, I do most of my sentiment analysis on Twitter and I'm, you know, watching people in energy and they're absolutely orgasmic about what's going on in energy. Um, a lot of victory laps, a lot of high fives, uh, a lot of posting these charts that are going parabolic. I mean, I would say the sentiment around energy in this particular community is uh, pretty similar to what we've seen in Bitcoin, uh, to what we saw in big cap tech back in 2017, uh, the enthusiasm for energy. And, you know, it, it's coinciding with, you know, the ch charts of coal and nat gas just climbing the wall, just going parabolic. Well, the charts uh, probably look pretty similar to Bitcoin in that case, on a one-year yeah, scale do. or something. Um, you know, what I should have done before the interview is I should have done a Google trends on Nat gas or something like that as to see if people are searching Nat gas. But, um, the sentiment is very hot and look, I believe in the trade long-term. If you look at a chart of the S and P divided by XLE over the last 20 years, it's been a relentless downtrend. Now we've had this tiny little uptick, right? And there's a long way to go in this trade, but even within a secular theme that might play out over five to 10 years, there's ups and downs and sentiment gets hot and sentiment gets cold. And if you're a trader, you try to trade it around. So I'm looking for some place to re-enter this trade. And if the winter is warm, you know, Nat gas is priced for perfection at this point. If we don't have a cold winter, like it's going to be, it's going to be a disaster. So I'm waiting for a place to re-enter and I think I'll get one in the next couple of months. And would this be energy like uh, oil, natural gas, or is there, there's also steel, there's coal, there's copper? Is there is it mostly oil you're focusing on? Uh, yeah, I mean that and, you know, being an ETF guy, I usually just do the big ETFs. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. You're known for your sentiment analysis. Uh, you recently had a conversation with Peter uh, Atwater, and he is also a sort of a sentiment guy. But we're going to play a clip that will be available on the essential tier. It's actually aired today of, of you and Peter. But but before we do, Jared, can you just uh, sort of walk us through the idea of the psychology of investors at the highs versus the psychology at the lows? How do you see it? Well, you know, a lot of people get sucked into the highs because the bullish case, whether it's the technicals or the fundamentals, it always looks best on the highs. Okay. And I think that's the people that, that that's what people are the trap that people are falling into right now with energy. Um, you mentioned before we went on the show that 
uh, in 2007, when ExxonMobil was at its all-time highs, it was actually the cheapest because the earnings were so high. So, you know, people were saying this is a very cheap stock. I mean, the fundamentals are great. And then, of course, it collapsed for the next 14 years. You know, so, uh, and it, conversely, it, you know, on the lows, you know, it's funny because I actually tweeted, this was maybe about a week ago, and I talked about the times, the conditions under which you should sell a stock, okay? So you should sell a stock if you're constantly refreshing the browser to look at the P&L, okay? You should sell a stock if you're thinking about retiring or if you're thinking about the things that you can buy when you're buying this stock. You know, that's it. You should sell a stock when you're telling people about all the money you're making in this stock. That's when you should sell a stock. Yeah, that's a, that's a signal. Uh, and I, I think it's funny because in your newsletter where you took that screenshot, you also noted that uh, XLE was at a relative high of something like 54. And you said, if it gets to 56, I'm going to, you tweeted, if it get, if XLE gets to 56, I'm going to buy a watch. And that and was the top. Said, Little that did I know, I, I, I called the top on myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did um it's because it's so strange. I feel like that's exactly what happened in you know the high of XLE in like April or May or whatever, and then we've had some some weakness. But this this renewed strength has surprised surprised me in the in the oil market in the energy market. Um, you know, I on the one hand I get that there's this fervor among the the Twitterati, the the folks that you see on Twitter, and they're sort of beating their chests. But on the other hand, there is the fact that like the prices themselves have gone up, and not all of that is due to speculation. Some of it is due to just the demand to use the commodity is greater than the supply. Uh, do you think that that will continue or it's only that the speculative fervor that you see will sort of recede? Um, I don't know if I have a simple answer to that question. I mean, you know, I, I basically my thesis when I bought XLE over a year ago was um, it was exactly what is playing out right now. Okay. It's, it's played out exactly according to plan. Um, you know, I sold it a couple of weeks early, right? Left some money on the table. Um, I would rather sell something early than sell it late. Okay. Cause the problem is if you sell something late, so, some very bad psychology happens, right? So let's say you buy a stock at 40 and it goes to a hundred. Okay. If you sell it at 80 and it goes to a hundred, then you have regret, but you're like, oh, well, I made money. If, if it goes to 100 and then it goes down to 80, what happens is, is that you're like, well, I've taken a drawdown from the highs and I'm going to hold on to this until it gets back up to the highs. So people will hold on to that. Then it goes down to 60. Then it goes back down to 40. Okay. Um, so I'm a big fan of selling things early rather than late. Now, the problem is, and this could be true in a case like energy, right? If this is a big five to 10 year secular trend. And, you know, I'm selling something at 80 cause I think it's going to go to hundred. Like maybe it goes to 300, maybe it goes to 500. And I've sold it way too early because I was not a believer in this big secular trend. And that's one of the downsides of, you know, look like when I was at Lehman brothers, I was trading things on a second by second basis, very high frequency. Right. And I've lengthened my holding period over time. You know, I held energy for a year and a half, but still I'm not to the point, I'm not patient enough to hold something for 10 years. 
and let a thesis like that play out. And that's just a shortcoming of my own. You know, I just I just don't have that kind of patience yet. And I have a lot more patience than I used to. I have a follow-up question on that, Jerry. But first, let's play uh, the clip from your interview with Peter Atwater that aired on the Real Vision Essential tier today. Let's take a look. And you used a term, I don't remember what it is, but you talked about how at peaks in sentiment, people are thinking about the future. And at lows in sentiment, people are thinking about the immediate surroundings around them. What, what, is, what, did you, what did you talk about that? Yeah, so I call it horizon preference. That's right, yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a simple but overlooked aspect of, of decision-making. And that is when our confidence is low, meaning we feel intensely vulnerable. The only thing that matters is addressing the threat in front of us. And so that puts us in intense me here now mode. It becomes about me, not you. It becomes about right here in this moment and right now. So my, my entire decision-making focus is immediate in every dimension. And, and the choices we make are, are absolutely concrete. If I go then to the other end of the spectrum, our, our ability to embrace abstraction is extreme. And so we're very generous. It becomes about us, not me. It becomes, um, in terms of horizon, this unlimited horizon into space, not surprisingly, in, as far as distance and as far as time, way out into the future. We, we extrapolate things you know, as far as the eye can see, and in turn, investors value them accordingly. And so earlier this year, there were all this incredible mosaic of us everywhere forever decision making. And what you've started to see is, is natural retrenchment from that. Um, we're becoming much more isolationist, much more conservative, um, you know, much much less willing to embrace illusion. So, Jared, taking Peter's uh, framework of the horizon preference, where at the top, everything looks rosy, the future looks bright, possibilities are endless, and then at the bottom, as he says, people are much less willing to embrace illusion. Where We talked about the energy market. Where do you think we are in the general market? Let's take the S&P 500. Well, first, let me just tell you a story. Um, I had a I had a Zoom call yesterday with a VC fund. Um, uh, I wasn't really going to become an investor, but I just was sort of chatting with them about what they did. So this is a it's a crypto based VC fund, and it's like for Web three applications and stuff like that. And they're they're telling me about the stuff they invest in, and it's super futuristic. I mean, it's like you know, it's blowing my mind. I mean, it's it's like space. It's like super futuristic. And uh, I'm, I'm like, well, how are you investing? And they're like, well, we're investing in tokens. So this is, you know, this is a VC fund that it's not buying equity in companies and private companies. It's buying tokens. So the whole thing is like super, super risky. Um, and, you know, I, I actually left that meeting and I thought about horizon preference, you know, because right now horizon preference is very long. You know, we're thinking about these very futuristic things. We're thinking about space and EVs and, you know, vertical farming. And like, you know, we went through this whole SPAC thing and all these technologies. When things are bad, like at the, you know, the bottom of March 2020 or 2008 or whatever, 
people's horizon preferences become very short and they think about where do I get food? How do I pay my rent? And it becomes very immediate, you know? So we fluctuate in horizon preference over time. Um, and right now we're at the, we're at the long end of it. You know, we have a very long horizon preference and we will return to that other state at some point in the future. I don't know when that is, but I can guarantee you we will return to that state at some point. Yeah. I hear exactly what you're saying. It's, it's hard to sort of be super excited about the metaverse when, you know, you have, you have to pay your rent, you know, you're, you're, you're facing possible, possible eviction. Um, what was I going to say? Um, it seems to me, Jared, you know, I don't follow Sussman nearly as closely as you do, but that the sort of the apogee of excitement about tech stocks and, you know, very, let's say, small cap tech stocks that have a price to sales ratio like higher than, you know, 10, let's say, that peaked like sort of alongside the SPAC bubble. And we've had a sort of a deflating of that bubble, um, you know, but it seems like maybe in crypto, the, the, the fervor there is, is definitely perhaps as strong as ever, maybe even even stronger. Um, what do you think about about crypto as well as the sort of non-crypto techs that's still very speculative? Uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm sort of sad. I'm not involved in crypto right now. You know, I sold in January, and uh, you know the funny thing is, this is you know, you know, I sold at about forty-one thousand in January, and I expected a drawdown to about twenty thousand. The drawdown went down to about twenty-nine thousand. And the reason it didn't go lower is because Tesla was buying 1.6 billion worth of crypto. They were like the stabilizing bid on the market. I think absent Tesla, I think Bitcoin would have went a lot lower. Okay. Um, when I look at the last 10 months of like economic history, we had GameStop, then we had the SPACs, uh, we've, we've got crypto, like we've sort of had these rolling bubbles, NFTs, I forgot about the NFTs, NFTs and collectibles. We've had these spikes and bubbles over the last, these sort of mini speculative bubbles over the last 10 months. And I think this is part of one big process of distribution. I mean, if you watch the interview with, the interview with Peter Atwater, like you can't come away from that in interview and just be thinking like everything's okay. Like it's, it's really, it's, it's a very dark interview, you know? And, um, and so first, you know, in Peter, you know, Peter and I both do sentiment. He's much more empirical. He actually measures things. I kind of do the yabba dabba do thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, but we both do the same thing, and we both come to the same conclusion, which is why it was such a great interview, because, you know, uh, we both are the two people that understand sentiment. Yeah, it, it is a fantastic interview. I recommend everyone who's uh, here, here now to watch it. Jerry, so you know you can just tell by looking at the chart of the S and P 500, we haven't had a major correction now. It might feel like it because we're I don't know five seven percent uh, of a, a drawdown from all time highs, but really that's normal. And sort of a fifteen percent drawdown is is to be expected in most years. What are signs, Jared, that you are looking for on the horizon that you say, hey, this could be about to get a lot worse? And the rolling over that you mentioned is not only like on the horizon, but it is, you know, it's, it's on the horizon and coming fast. The biggest risk is rates for sure. Um, you get tens up to about 1.8, 1.9 long duration tech and biotech is going to start rolling over. You're going to get a lot of volatility. You get rates up to two, you get some sticker shock there. Um, I, I really, I really think the big catalyst is uh, rates. You know, a couple of weeks ago when you had me on the show, we were talking about China and I said that China could be the source 
of the next crisis. I still think that's the case. I think there's going to be more to come out of China. It's quiet right now. People have kind of forgotten about Evergrande. Um, you know, we'll have to see what the next inflation print is, right? So if CPI prints 6 7%, that's going to be a big deal. So, But I really think it comes down to rates. Yeah, I think, uh, just to mention on China, I think it's because of the, the news cycle that we're not talking about Evergrande. I mean, it's it's still incredibly important. Evergrande dollar-denominated bonds are trading like 20 cents on the dollar at, at all-time lows. And then earlier this week, you had Fantasia, another real estate development property. They defaulted on a bond of over $200 million. So it's definitely not like it stopped being a problem. It's just I just th it's think it's more of a news cycle. But Jared, going back to, oh, oh sorry, you have something to say? Nope. Okay, okay. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. Well, we actually we actually have a question. Uh, Stephen has a question from the exchange about China. He says that with China unlikely to be a catalyst of economic resurgence like they were after the Great Financial Crisis, what do you think are the potential catalysts for a kickstart this time around? Uh, I mean, just in terms of pure economics, uh, China's. Uh, going to turn into a basket case. Um, I don't see a lot. I, I see growth declining in the U.S. and Europe. I mean, really, like, you know, I think global GDP is going to be going down over the next 12 months, you know? Um, sorry, Jared, the absolute GDP or the rate of GDP growth? Oh, sorry, the rate of GDP growth. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so. Got it. Yeah, we, well, we have another question from um, just FH who asks, what's up with gold? Bitcoin is looking like a much better bet against fiat inflation. Jared, I know six months ago, you had to have not bought that at all. Are you sort of open to the idea of Bitcoin now as a hedge against inflation? Well, um, I mean, Bitcoin, I think, is sort of an inflation hedge. Um, I, ah, gold, is, gold is a complicated subject. Um, I do think that Bitcoin has stolen a lot of flows away from gold. I think if Bitcoin didn't exist, gold would probably be at 3000 right now, for sure, 100%. Um, so, you know, I, one of the things you see on Twitter is you see these guys and they post like a bunch of returns, like over the last 10 years. So, this is, you know, the S&P 500, bonds, credit, blah, 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 down the list. And they do Bitcoin and gold. And Bitcoin is up like 1,500,000% and gold <laughs> is up 1%. So you just feel like an idiot. You know what I mean? Like the, po like the point of that is to say you're an idiot for investing in gold. Um, you know, it, it, I've been taking a lot of abuse for the last couple of years. Not, maybe not the last couple of years. Certainly for the last year uh, for my position on gold. But I think that the the distribution is uh, has really big fat tails, um, and I I think that if gold were to pick up some steam and get to 1800, 1900, it could explode higher. So, but at the same time, you know, I like between gold and gold miners and silver and silver miners, 
that's like 30% of my portfolio. And I'm, I don't stare at it on a daily basis. And I just have the confidence that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jared, it, uh, going back to your point about uh, the biggest risk to, to the stock market is rising bond yields. What do you think is a catalyst for rising bond yields? The traditional answer is inflation fears. But as we've seen this year, even as inflation has run super hot, uh, bond yields can actually decline on, on, you know, on red hot on CPI numbers. So do you think, you know, are you relying on, on inflation to be the catalyst for rising bond yields? Or is there another reason that you sort of have your eyes you know, set on that? Well, what determines interest rates is the supply and demand for bonds. Okay. Inflation doesn't determine bond yields. Productivity doesn't determine bond yields. GDP doesn't determine bond yields. A lot of, a lot of people sort of like conflate these things. And, you know, Lacey Hunt does this from time to time. Um, you know, he'll say, well, bond yields can't go up because productivity is X. And no, it doesn't matter. It's the supply and demand for government bonds. That's what determines interest rates. Okay. So what we've seen in the bond market over the last six months is stuff that hasn't really made a lot of sense. You know, when when 10s got to 112 in August, everybody was scratching their heads. You know, inflation was 5%. They said, this doesn't make any sense. And now that seems to be resolving itself, but nobody has an explanation for what's going on. And that's good. It's just the market. It's just people trading bonds. So I think a more productive use of people's time is to spend time analyzing the flows, right? Okay, what are foreign buyers doing? What are pension funds doing? What are, you know, fill in the blank. Mm. And, uh, when you look at the flows, what are what are you seeing? I know a colleague of mine at Real Vision, Weston uh, Nakamura, said to me when, when uh, earlier in the year that the reason that sort of rates had stopped spiking was because of Golden Week in Japan. So like uh, like um, you know the the Japanese buyers uh, weren't there. And I said, Weston, that's like the so reason you know you really think the the reason that rates did this is because of a holiday in Japan. But actually, uh, I didn't believe I didn't I didn't put much credence in that then, but I, later I, I was reading this report from a big bank, I forget which, and it said that like, the, um, you know, a huge, huge percentage of the reason in the sell-off and rates was, was due to um, you know, the Japanese buyer not being there and then being there later in the year. So sorry. I 100% believe that, 100% yeah. believe that. So I think people spend too much time trying to uh, interpret or criticize what's going on in the bond market. I mean, if you really want to find out what's going on in the bond market, go to Goldman or Morgan or B of A, go to the tenure note trader and ask him what he's seeing. That's going to be the answer, you know? Yeah, yeah. And when, when you, uh, you know, no longer in that world, but still with lots of connections in that world and following that market, what are you seeing when you look at the flows, um, I'm a, let alone like the chart? Well, the biggest, the, the biggest marginal buyer is the Fed. Okay. So that's why tapering is so important. We're doing 120 billion a month right now. If we go to 90 billion a month, I mean, this will be priced in immediately. It'll be discounted immediately. But if we taper, that is going to be worth 20 basis points in tens, like immediately. So that's why what the Fed does is so important because they're the biggest marginal buyer. And, and they've, they've actually, you know, if you go back to the bond auctions in like 2008, 2009, we were running these massive deficits. We were doing these huge quarterly refunding announcements. We had these big auctions, 60, 70 billion at a time. And you know, at the time, I had just started the Daily Dirt Nap, and I said, these auctions are gonna fail. 
there's no way that people are going to show up at these auctions. Not only did they show up at the auctions, the bid to cover was like three. They were massively oversubscribed. And it was because of risk preferences is because the stock market was like getting annihilated and people wanted to go into bonds, you know? So that's the stuff that really adds value when you're looking at the rates market. And Jared, as you look forward to next three, six months, or, or really pick your time horizon, uh, what asset are you class are you the most bearish on where you see the biggest downside risk? Uh, I mean, this is going to sound kind of cliche, but I would say tech. And, um, you know, that's that's been popular and wrong for a long time. Um, but I do believe that's going to be the case, um, partly partly because of rates, partly because of China. Um, I mean, you know, I have some specific shorts in the tech space. Uh, that are based on a real thesis. So, yeah, interesting. Um, well, uh, Jared, thanks so much for joining us on this Friday edition of the Daily Briefing. And uh, thank you to everyone who's watching. Uh, we will be right back here on Monday, same time, same place. Uh, so, until then, see you on the Real Vision Exchange. Have a great weekend, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.